I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Laura Welcher from the Long Now Foundation. I'm the director of the Rosetta Project. And uh, as some of you may know, this summer we finished our first prototype Rosetta disk after eight years of work. And, um, and so now five copies of that disk are out there in the world. Uh, that is the very long-term archive of the Rosetta Project, which is, uh, as, as you know, is a collection of the world's languages. And when we made that available and over the past several years, we've had many, many requests for a version that wouldn't cost $25,000 and, uh, and that we could distribute it very widely. So um, I'm very pleased to announce that we have now made a version that can be distributed very widely. And this is a, a digital, fully browsable version of the disk, um, which is available now on DVD. And today we've made it available on the Rosetta Project website for anybody to go and interact with. Um, and so this is what it looks like. So now if you go to rosettaproject.org, this is what you see. And this gives you the virtual experience of looking at the Rosetta disk through a microscope, except you're browsing it on your computer. And uh, so what you see here is the, uh, what we call the human eye readable side. So this is the part that starts with um, languages at a scale that the human eye can see, and it tells you this is an archive of the world's languages, and then this, the, the text spirals down and gets progressively smaller and smaller. And inside those uh, radiating spokes are, lists, uh, are a list of languages um, that have information on the other side of the disk. So I'll show you what this looks like. You can browse all the way in. The languages are arranged by geographic region. And so you can see I'm zooming in on the Americas and getting closer, closer. And here you can see we have uh, documentation in the Rosetta Project on uh, the Pierrehant language that uh, Dan Everett is going to be talking about tonight. So there's uh, uh, Mura Pierrehant, which is the, um, the very small language grouping that Pierrehant belongs to. And you can also look at the other side of the disk. This is um, the archive side. So this side has about 14,000 pages of documentation on about 1,500 languages. There's about 7,000 languages in the world, so this is a good chunk of them. And you can also zoom all the way in on this one. So now we're zooming into the region that has documentation on languages of the Americas and getting closer and closer and closer. Aha! Turns out we have information on Piraha by Daniel Everett. <laughs> so uh, you're very welcome to, uh, to go browse the site at your leisure. You can also buy DVD versions of, uh, of this disc. So it is now my very great pleasure to introduce uh, uh, the speaker for tonight, Dan Everett. 
um, a linguist who's worked for many, many years with um, an endangered language, the, um, a group of people called the Piraha um, along the Amazon River. And in the 70s, as he's going to tell you much more about, he um, equipped as a missionary, uh, went with his entire family uh, to work with the Piraha, and he had uh, his missionary tools and beliefs, he had his linguistic tools and beliefs, and he went there, and what he learned from this very small group of people um, shook, actually rocked, both of those sets of beliefs um, and changed his worldview in a very fundamental way and also changed uh, the way that he looked at language. And now his research and his writings on language are changing the way all of us think about language works and how it's encoded in the human mind. So let me introduce and welcome Dan Everett. Uh, Great. Good to be here this evening. Have you ever imagined that you were God? That's something that I think about once in a while. Um, and when I do, I think maybe the Tower of Babel could have been different than it was, the story was originally told. Maybe God actually liked the results of humans creating some uh, tower, and he decided to take out of this one language and make many and send people around the world to solve problems. Uh, as it were, creating thousands of other atoms to name not Adam, A-T-O-M, but Adam, A-D-A-M, to create uh, and name other creatures and learn about the world around them. And languages have spread around the globe. We don't really know where the first language started, but uh, we have ideas about how long ago it might have been. Uh, and we do know that languages thrive and that the general principle that makes languages alike or different is very simple. You talk like who you talk with. So if you talk with somebody all the time, you'll talk like them. And if you don't talk with them, eventually you won't talk uh, like them at all. So languages live uh, like bread and love by being shared with others. But languages die also. And languages die in t one of two ways. First way is that the speakers actually die. And so if the speakers of a language die out, the language is, is going to die. And the Pitaha almost died out in the early 60s. They got down to 80 or 90 because of a measles epidemic and eventually have come back up to 350 people, but that's still a very small number. Another reason languages die is because the speakers stop speaking them. The speakers live, but they shift to another language. Um, so uh, the languages that are gone usually won't come back. Uh, so the language of Squanto, uh, the, the Indian fellow you all remember from your history books who helped the pilgrims make it through the first winter, the Tupinamba, who occupied the coast of Brazil in the 1500s and were eventually wiped out by a combination of factors, mainly the, the activities of Jesuit priests. And another language that might be dying out is Irish, uh, and, and we don't know how much longer that will last. <clears throat> there are almost 7,000 um, or more than 7,000 languages spoken in the world, and all the red regions that you see are the areas of highest concentration of languages. So if you look very carefully at the world map, you'll see that the highest concentration of languages in the world is Papua New Guinea. Um, in Brazil, there are about 188 languages still spoken, 
probably half the number that were spoken in the 1500s and a population of uh, less than 200,000 people. What's the scale of language loss in the world? What I want to do this evening is talk to you about the general issues of language loss and what that means to us when, when languages die, but also very specifically look at uh, a case study, the Pitaha people that I've spent the last 30 years working with and, and the lessons that they have for us, both scientifically and how to live lives as human beings on planet Earth. There are 6,912 to 7,000 languages. Nobody knows exactly how many, but around that uh, number, 3,500 languages are spoken by 0.2% of the world's population. So almost half the world's languages, or half the world's languages, are spoken by only 0.2% of the population. 40% of the languages in the world are endangered. Some estimates uh, go as high as one language every two weeks going, becoming extinct. That's much higher than mammals, only 18%, or 5% of fish, or 8% of plants, according to a, a new book that I highly recommend by David Harrison on when languages die. So what is lost? Uh, the late Ken Hale, linguist at MIT, who was one of the greatest field workers who ever lived, said that when a single language is, is lost, it's worse than a bomb dropped on the Louvre. It's a museum. It's a repository of knowledge that can't be replaced. It's not written. Most of these languages are not written at all. Linguists have to go there and develop writing systems. They're not written. There's no way to recover the knowledge once it's gone, once these languages are lost. We lose uh, ways of life and records of ways of life. We lose solutions to problems. We lose classifications of plants and animals and folk knowledge of the world. We lose myths, folk tales, lullabies, songs, poetry, and literature talk encodes ways of life. One of the groups that I've worked on in the Amazon are the Wadi, who were, until about 1962, cannibals, and they practiced exo- and endo-cannibalism. Exo-cannibalism, eat your enemies. Endo-cannibalism, eat your own dead. And the reason that they ate their dead, which was a very elaborate set of rituals, uh, was to, among other things, to give the dead immortality. They live on through us. As we eat them and consume our, our beloved and the first people to have to consume the dead were the immediate family, uh, to, to be able to give them eternal life through us. The Wadi discourse about death and immortality is fascinating and, and teaches us a lot about how to face death and how to live lives unafraid of death in the world. And that's going as the Wadi language is more and more endangered. Almost 50%, some people say 55% of the foods consumed in the world today come from the Americas, cassava, manioc, chilies, uh, coca, uh, coffee, tobacco, uh, corn. Some people have uh, claimed that corn might be the greatest invention in human history. It does seem to have been invented by the Mayas or predecessors to the Mayas uh, from uh, husbandry of, of different kinds of grasses, and it's certainly one of the most widely consumed foods in the world. But as these languages have died, the question that arises for us is, what else have we lost? And the answer is, we will never know. How many cures for diseases, how many other foods, how many other great stories and philosophies have we lost because these people have gone. We lose uh, information when these languages die about classifications and taxonomies of the world. So the YMP Indians of Brazil, uh, speakers of a Tupi Guarani language, classify birds. Every bird in their environment is carefully classified. But they don't classify them just like we do. So for example, someone noticed, a colleague of mine in Brazil, Alan Jensen, when he did his dissertation on them, 
that uh, one type of hawk is classified in the toucans. Why would they classify a hawk among the toucans? Surely they can see the difference. The reason is their classification system follows the foods they eat and certain kinds of behavior. And this hawk, as we got to know more about it, actually eats what toucans eat and, and has a behavior similar to theirs. We lose this kind of knowledge, this folk knowledge that is vital to us understanding um, the way the world works, especially in these local environments. When I asked the word for dog in Pitaha, I got two words, uh, neopai and niaibai. And I asked them, why are there two words? No, that's the way it is. And then I saw them bring in two jungle animals that, according to my book of mammals in the tropics, were both extinct, and they were called uh, jungle dogs. And it said they haven't been seen in the wild for over 50 years. And here the Pitaha had two they were keeping as pets in the village and knew all about their behavior, all about uh, the things they eat and the places they stay, things that biologists would love to know. And we lose this as these languages begin to die out. We know, for example, that Tupi Indians uh, in Brazil have heavily influenced Brazilian literature from the legends that were written down by Catholic priests. We learn things about calendars and the way time is kept. So the Natchez Indians of Louisiana and the United States uh, keep their calendar according to crops that grow at certain times. And, and by knowing how their language works and how they keep time, we learn something about crops and how different kinds of crops have entered the area historically. Um, when languages die, it's like, to me, a great disturbance in the force. There's something about human, humanity and the, the unity of all humans and, and the things that we all depend on, the knowledge that we've, been, uh, we've spread around the world to share with one another is, is lost. So I want to talk to you first about a small group that I've worked with called the Banawa, and then I'll spend most of my time talking with you about the Pitaha. The Banawa are now only 79 people. They are members of a family called the Arawa family, and there are only seven languages left in this family, and the biggest one is about 1,500 people spoken in Peru and recently was accused of, uh, uh, of being cannibals. And this is a very highly charged uh, accusation in South America because if you can find that a group is cannibals, the idea is they don't deserve any land or anything. It's completely false that they're cannibals. There's no evidence whatsoever for this that any uh, group anymore practices cannibalism, uh, not that I would care. Uh, but the population of the Banawa is, is 79 as of 2005, the last time I was there. And one type of special knowledge that the Banawa have is how to make poison. So they hunt with long blowguns and poison darts. And these, uh, th this is really fascinating technology, to know how to make poison, according to uh, ethnobotanist Mark Plotkin in his book, The Shaman's Apprentice, is, is really to sit at the top of knowledge about the uses of, of, of the plants around you and, and the knowledge of how different poisons affect. What kinds of ingredients do you put in the poison? I remember going with a uh, Banawa man to uh, collect poison one time and film the entire process, and here he is getting poison. It doesn't look like poison, does it? It just looks like a tree, but actually it's a vine that grows up high in in the trees of the jungle, he has to climb up, cut the vine, the vine falls, it's full of strychnine in the bark. And so uh, I didn't know that, so I walked over, this guy's cutting, and I just picked it up and said, what's this? And he said, he looked at my hands to make sure there were no cuts and everything, he said, you shouldn't have done that, wash your hands as soon as we get back to the village, and don't put them in your eyes or your mouth on the way back. Uh, they take strychnine from the bark, and they use this to make a very potent poison that goes on darts, and, and the first sample of this poison was taken in the 1800s 
and taken to the Smithsonian Institution. And a hundred years later, they tested the poison, and it was still just as lethal as when they had originally collected it. Uh, so they know how to make very good poisons. And they make uh, blowguns to hunt with. I remember uh, bringing uh, quite a few of their darts and, and blowguns to the States uh, for the Carnegie Museum in, in Pittsburgh. Had them in a long uh, uh, PVC pipe. Uh, just, it didn't occur to me that that pipe could break and those darts could get... So don't tell anybody that I brought this up here. But we were going through customs, and the guy said, open the pipe. And I tried to open it, and it wouldn't open. It was hard. He said, I'll just go on through. And my son, who was about eight then, said, oh, we could have brought cocaine. Uh, <clears throat> endangered languages endanger science. And the reason for that is there are many different areas of science, many different sciences that want to know where language came from. How does it relate to the evolution of our species? Is there anything like it in other species? What is language like? What's the essence of language? How does it relate to the mind? Uh, how does it relate to culture? It, what's the connection between the things we believe and the values that we share and the way we talk? Is there any connection? We can't know this until we get a wide variety of languages to study. So I'm going to talk to you about a people that are called in the literature the Pitahas, but who don't even know what that word means themselves. They call themselves the Hiaichehe, and they talk something like this, which means don't speak with a crooked head to me, speak with a straight head. And their language is called a straight head. And you guessed what our language is called, a crooked head. They call themselves the straight ones. <clears throat> They're found in Brazil. If you took out all of the country boundaries of South America, the Pitaha would be right in the heart of the Amazon jungle, right in the heart of, of South America as a continent. These are the kinds of sounds you go to sleep with at night. The Pitaha have a great expression when you go to bed at night, and that is, uh, don't sleep, there are snakes. Uh, uh, if they know you're afraid of something else, though, they might say, uh, don't sleep, there are tarantulas. Uh, they're not, they, you know, whatever makes you uh, the most afraid. But they say this to themselves, and they don't sleep solidly all night long. Uh, field research and figuring out these languages takes a certain amount of time. The reason this photo is in there is the little boy standing by me is now in his second year as an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Miami. And when I first went to the Pitaha, he was nine months old, so it's been a long time there. Now, if you notice, when one starts singing, the others are about a syllable behind him. And the reason for that is they haven't sung this song before. He's telling them about an experience that he had that day, and they are just following along, about a syllable behind, singing with him. And when you analyze the singing, it turns out that it's nothing more than their language. It's not an invented melody. The tones of their words and the stress patterns of their words and the length of their syllables produce the singing effect. And they accent those things to produce music. 
but it's just part of their normal speech. <laughs> That's a spirit speaking. Uh, the Pitaha only believe, and we'll talk about this in, in more detail, the Pitaha believe in what they can see or what someone who has seen tells them about. So how do they believe in spirits? Well, they believe they've seen them. Uh, they think, I am one, uh, still. I mean, just last year when I thought we were great friends and there was no mysteries between us, they, one of them said, hey, Dan, what? Do Americans die? And I said, uh, yeah, but I didn't want any research conducted. Um, <laughs> I said, yes, we do die. And they said, well, you know, you're really old and you're not dead yet. Um, <clears throat> so I, I told them about wars and this sort of thing, which was a fascinating conversation to tell them that groups of people would go out and kill other groups of people. And uh, I think there was a German researcher with me at the time, and I talked to them about you know, World War II as best as I could explain that in, in Pita Ha. And they just found it fascinating that we killed each other, but at least it let them know that we did die. Uh, my name, when I first went to the Pinaha, they don't use foreign names. So my first name was Ogiai. I was just named after someone else in the village. My next name was Aibigai, which just means uh, uh, strong, but I don't think that was really a compliment. Uh, and I don't know exactly what they meant by that, but it wasn't a compliment from the way they used it. Uh, <coughs> And then finally, I, I was in the village uh, camping out. It was late at night, and I'd been traveling at night. I was sort of lost on the river, and I found this village, and I got my tent up, put my tent up in the, in the middle of the village. The fires were going, and I was really tired, and one of the, the Pitaha came and said, I want to talk to you. And I said, I'd really rather sleep. I'm tired. He said, just let me talk to you. And I came out, and he said, your name is I, Big Eye, but, you know, you really, that's not a good name for you anymore. And I said, why? He says, because now you're really old. And uh, so I'm going to name you after my father who died. And uh, so my name now is Pau Aisi. It's because I'm old. Uh, this fellow's old. His name is Toy Toy. But as you can see, he's very fit. His skin is tough as leather. Uh, he's a, still a, a very good hunter and fisher. And you can see how long their arrows are and how big their bows are. Uh, they're a fascinating people. They're also interesting because the canoe is such a vital part of their lives and they don't make them. They prefer to steal them. Uh, <clears throat> I, ta I, I taught them how to make canoes once. I brought a Brazilian in who made canoes and we worked on it together for days. And after we got a great canoe going, um, uh, the Brazilian left and then they came and said, we'd like another canoe like that. And I said, well, I've got the tools. You know how to make it. And, oh, Peter, how don't make canoes? Uh, why not? That's hard work. So... Um, <clears throat> What do the Pitahas have to teach us? What does this small group of 350 people scattered along the Mycenae River in, in the center, center of the Amazon rainforest have to teach us, if anything? And, and in fact, I think they have a lot to teach us. From the perspective of science, they have things to teach us about the relationship between language and culture, be, about the origin of language, about the role and nature of language, whether language is an instinct or a tool. I think they have things to say about all of these important scientific topics. But as human beings, they have perhaps even more to teach us about their happiness and their way of life. Recently, uh, a team of three MIT psycholinguists uh, went with me to, to check out some of the claims that I've made that have been controversial to people. And when we got there, after we'd been there for a few days, they both, uh, the, the team said, these seem like the happiest people we've ever seen. Well, 
how would you evaluate happiness? As, as good psychologists, they said, we just measure the time they spend smiling and laughing and compare that to the time that Americans, for example, spend smiling and laughing, and I bet you they'd come out ahead. The Pitaha have a very interesting concept. Among all Amazonian tribes, that, uh, as far as I can tell, one important value that is shared is called immediacy of experience. Amazonian tribes are very interested in what's going on now, and they tend not to value so much uh, the deep past or the distant future, but to focus on now. And many anthropologists have commented on that. But I don't know of any other group that has a concept which the Pitaha call ibipiu. And ibipiu is a fascinating concept. When you're out there, they don't speak Portuguese, by the way. So when I first went there in December of 1977 and got off the plane airsick and looking for the first place to throw up, uh, they started talking to me, and I didn't understand anything they said. So concept like ibipiu, these kinds of concepts, are really difficult to figure out when there's no language in common. So I remember once a fellow walked into the jungle, and they said, he ibipiu left. And then somebody else came out of the jungle, and they said, he ibipiu arrived. Well, maybe it means he just left, he just arrived. And then I saw someone go around the bend in a canoe. They said, he ibipiu uh, left. He came back, he ibipiu left. Plains, they would say ibipiu. And then one night, um, I, I couldn't find my candles, and I just had a match, and, and my flashlight batteries were dead. And I had this, can this match lit, and it was flickering. And they said, the match is ibipiuing. They used it as a verb, and I couldn't figure out what on earth would this mean. Well, it means to go in and out of the boundaries of experience. Uh, if you want to use a technical term, you can say that it refers to experiential liminality. But it simply means to go in and out of experience. This is so important to them. Um, you know, not to, uh, we do this when we're children, you know, peekaboo. That's sort of the equivalent to ibipiu in, in our vocabulary. It is, it is the excitement of seeing something go in and out of experience. And the Pitaha have codified that and made it a very important part of their uh, language and an important part of their culture. And one thing I noticed was that uh, their verb structure, so English has how many verb forms? Well, it's got about five. Sing, sang, sung, singing, sings. Spanish or Portuguese might have 40 different verb forms. Well, Pitaha, like many American Indian languages, has a very complex verbal system. So Pitaha has 16 different suffixes that can go at the end of a verb. That gives two to the 16th power possible verb forms, and, and that's a lot. That's more than 40. Uh, and of those things, three suffixes are very important, and those tell you how you got your evidence. So every verb has to have on it the source of the evidence. Did you hear about it? Did you see it with your own eyes, or did you deduce it from the local evidence? Uh, so if I say, did John go fishing? They can say, John went fishing, he I, which means I heard that he did. Or they can say, John went fishing, Sibiga, uh, and uh, that means uh, I deduced that he did. Or they can say, John went fishing, ha, and that means uh, I saw it, he went. Um, in some respects, they're the ultimate empiricists, or like uh, people from Missouri, the show-me state. <clears throat> Part of this cultural value of the Pinaha, of immediacy of experience, reflected in this word ibipiu, uh, produces a value to keep information slow and to keep it verifiable, and it must be witnessed. So as a Christian missionary, which I no longer am, if you read the book, you'll find out what they did to me, uh, they actually 
demanded evidence for what I believed, and I realized I couldn't give it as well as they wanted me to give it. So uh, <clears throat> uh, this changed me profoundly. Uh, but I, I remember telling them about Jesus one time, and they said, um, so Dan, uh, Jesus, is he uh, brown like us or is he white like you? Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen him. Well, what did your dad say? Because your dad must have seen him. No, he never saw him. Well, what did your friends say who saw him? Uh, I, don't have nobody, I don't know anybody who saw him. Why are you telling us about him then? <laughs> Why would you talk about something you don't have evidence for? Of course, we do that all the time. Uh, uh, Peter Ha talked about a fish. Now, I shouldn't make them sound like saints because one of the great functions of this suffix to say I saw it with my own eyes is to lie. <laughs> so it works. You know, they do lie. Uh, and and I've, I remember once taking a story about how they killed their babies in fanticide. And I took this, I was really getting into this. I was taking this whole story down in fanticide. And they all started laughing. I said, what are you laughing for? Who would kill their babies? <laughs> <coughs> Difficulties of being an anthropologist. In the, uh... <clears throat> now, one of the interesting things about Peter Hahn, in fact, it's, it's extremely interesting, is that they don't have any numbers. They don't even have the word for one. And they don't have even the concept of counting. Now, it took me a long time to work up the courage to make this claim. They have a couple of words that might be like numbers. Uh, one of them is hue, which I originally translated as one. And another one is hue, which I translated as two. And then there's another one, bagiso, which I translated as many. So one too many. There are Australian languages that have one too many systems. There are other languages like this. But then I realized that if I had, if I had, uh, if I had two, three fish of the same size and two of them were in one pile and one was in another, then they would, in fact, use the word I thought meant one for the one fish and the word I thought meant two for the two fish. But if the fish were different sizes so that there was one large fish and two very small fish, then they used the word that I thought meant one for the two very small fish and the word that I thought meant two for the very large fish. And, I began to, and then I realized that that was the same word that was appearing as a suffix on the noun for man to refer to a little boy, a little boy baby. So it means a little amount, but it doesn't mean a number. Well, when I made this claim, um, a lot of people didn't believe me. And so a psycholo these psychologists from MIT came down, and we published a paper in Cognition eventually, which last year won the, you know, was named by uh, Discover Magazine as one of the mo 100 top science stories of the year. But why would Discover Magazine find, why would anybody find that particularly interesting? Because it's been claimed that number is innate to human beings. There are many people who believe that number is, an innate, is part of the innate endowment of human beings. We all have numbers of some sort. If you show a group that doesn't have any numbers or any concept of counting, what does that mean? Well, one thing it does not mean is that they're retarded. It doesn't mean that they're stupid. I've seen Peter Howe have been kidnapped and raised outside the village as Brazilians who handle all the numbers just fine. I've, I met a, a young girl once about 13 years old, behind a counter in a store in a village of Brazilians not far from the Pitaha Reservation. She looked very familiar, and I was staring at her, and a guy said, oh, you think she looks like the Pitaha? And I said, actually, I do. Well, that's because she is a Pitaha. We took her when she was a little girl. And she kept store and made all the change. Um, and Pitaha children, when, when, expo when we tried to teach them numbers in Portuguese, learned these fairly quickly. But they do not have in their language a word for any number. Now, one of the ways that we showed that 
was to get them first to, we would put objects in front of them one at a time and ask them to name the quantities as we went up. You know, what's the size of this? So when we put one spool of thread, they would say, one. If we put two spools of thread, they would say, two. And then once we got up to uh, higher numbers, um, sometimes by three, but certainly by ten, we got bagiso. But I had already figured out that bagiso meant to cause to touch, to pile things up. It really wasn't a number. But when we started with, say, ten items on the page, or ten items on the board in front of us, and, and started taking them away, what you find is that they start uh, with the same, so the, the right end of both charts looks pretty much the same. But once you start getting down to even six, some of the Pitaha are, are using the word I thought meant one. So how on earth could they call six one? And when you get to three, if you're counting down, they all say one, what I thought was one. And the reason is the, the relative smallness of that quantity is what's in focus for them. And so they use the word that means relatively small in the appropriate context, but it's not a number. And if that's not a number, what does that mean? What does that mean for the ability to count? So we have a, a research proposal in now to go down and look at uh, the Pinaha from the perspective of, of education. When would be the best time to introduce math? What happens if people haven't had math for a long time? There are a lot of uh, proposals that have been based on the idea that all humans have math, that it's innate and that it matures at certain ages. But here's a tribe that doesn't have it at all. Another thing about the Pinaha, I won't have time to mention all the great things about them, um, especially their, their sense of humor, I've alluded to it, but is they have no creation stories. They don't, believe, they don't just demand evidence for my God, the God that I used to have. They demand evidence for any God, so they don't have one. They don't believe in God. They don't believe the world was ever created. They just, you ask them, and when you can finally get the idea across, it's hard enough to get the idea of something they don't even believe in across. They say, well, it's just the way it always was. This is the way the world is. What do you, what do you mean? I said, what, what was the world like before there was water? Before there was water? That's a stupid question. <laughs> there always has been water. There's always, there have always been trees. They have no creation stories. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. They take life very much as it comes. They don't want to die, but when they see death is coming, they don't fear it. They, don't, they, they certainly have sorrow when the death of a loved one dies or, or a dog. They love dogs tremendously, and so I've seen women cry all night long, and I thought somebody died, and I went over and I said, what's she crying about? They get embarrassed. Oh, I don't know what she's crying for. And, well, but what is she crying for? Oh, her dog died. Uh, and, and they definitely have sorrow about these things, but they, they get over it very quickly. They realize that, that death is part of life, and they don't create any legends to make themselves feel better, about any myths to make themselves feel better in the uh, absence of uh, life. They have the simplest kinship system known. So there's a word for me. There's a word for anybody of my generation, regardless of gender. There's a word for the generation above me. There's a word for the generation below me. And then there's a word for my biological son and, or my biological daughter. And that's it. That's exhaust their kinship system. Um, and if you know uh, much about kinship systems and marriage rules, like we have here, you can't marry your first cousin. The more elaborate the kinship system, usually the more elaborate the marriage rules. So the less elaborate the kinship system. So I've seen half-sisters and half-brothers uh, married. I've never seen full siblings married. But uh, there's no difference between brother and so anyone else of your generation. It just is a hagi, 
One of the things that frustrated me when I was, um, one of the many things when I was starting to work with Apitaha was trying to find the words for left and right. So I would say, this is my left hand. So I would say in Portuguese, which means nothing to them because they don't speak Portuguese, but I had to say something. Mão esquerda. And they would say, okay, hand. Okay, that's my right hand. Hand. That's your other hand. Uh, So after a while, you know, I couldn't get this, and I thought, I must be a terrible linguist. I can't even get left hand or right hand. And then one of them said, you know, that hand's upriver and this hand is downriver. And I said, you know, why are they introducing this irrelevant stuff? I'm trying to get left hand or right hand here. And so we went out to the jungle, and I said, okay, now I'll find it. They'll tell this guy to turn left or turn right. So, so they said, hey, turn upriver. And we're in the middle of the jungle, and he turns upriver. And they said, turn downriver. Turn towards the center of the jungle. Turn towards the water. I realized that, and this turns out not to be unique to the Pitaha, many other groups have this, they use systems of absolute direction. It's as though we only use north, south, east, and west rather than left or right. And we know that left or right are really not the best way to give directions because if I stand up here and tell you to turn left and use my left, that's your right. Uh, but if I tell you to turn up river, where's the closest river? Well, if you were a Pitaha, you would know that. <coughs> If you were a Pitaha, you would have a map of your local environment in your head. When I walk with the Pitahas in the jungle and I ask them, what's this tree? They give me a name and I write it down. What's this tree? They give me, they're always different. They know the name of every species. So they ask me, what do you call these in your language? What's that? Tree. What's that? Tree. <laughs> you just have one word? That's all I know. But there's some people that know more, but I don't. Um, The Pitaha don't even have words for yesterday or tomorrow. And I found this very strange. There's a word for other day. There's a word for now. There's a word for big time, a word for little time. But they don't have, and there's a word for sun is big, meaning noon, or the moon is big, meaning full moon. Um, But they don't have yesterday or tomorrow, for example. Why wouldn't they have that? Well, one of the interesting discoveries about the Pitaha is that their time, their view of time is that it's concentric. You take the moment of speech, and it's, things are a certain distance from that. If they're close by, they use one word, which means literally other day. If they're a little bit farther away, they use another word, big time, which could be future or past. So they conceive of time differently than we do, at least in this superficial way. I mean, I haven't done detailed studies to get the Pitaha philosophy of time, and they would probably tell me to go find something else to do. Uh, but it's something to think about. In any case, the concentric circle view of time as opposed to the linear view of time is, is a new way to conceive of time and, and comparing how different cultures talk about even something as much a part of our daily experience as time can open up new vistas. Now, you have to be probably a linguist to appreciate this, but I'll, I'll try to give you some of the excitement about it. So one of the greatest sources of hate mail that I've ever had is the claim that the Pitaha language lacks recursion, that their, their grammar lacks recursion. Now, what is recursion, and who cares anyway? So let me tell you what it is, and then why it's important, and why the Pitaha are important for the study of it. Recursion is any rule or any operation that applies to itself. Uh, that sounds simple, right? So, so take the act of looking at yourself in a mirror or, or looking at a reflection. Now, if you, if you just look at yourself in the mirror... That's one exemplar of reflection. But if you hold a mirror up to another mirror, what do you get? You get one mirror inside another mirror inside another mirror inside another mirror. That's recursive, whatever it is. It's the recursion of visual images reappearing. 
Now, uh, I used to play uh, in bands. In fact, my first experience with San Francisco was when I was growing up in Imperial Valley, California. I got arrested trying to come up here in the 60s, trying to get to Haight-Ashbury. I was only 15, and my dad didn't like the idea that I was coming up here to live uh, because I played in bands. And one of the, of course, like everybody in the 60s, admired the innovation of Jimi Hendrix. And one of the most uh, amazing things that he did was to really take uh, advantage of auditory recursion called feedback. Uh, holding up a guitar and letting an amplif amplifier pick up its own uh, output and do it apply to its own output over and over again. Now, that makes the def definition of uh, recursion, and it produces feedback, which to some people can sound like noise, but in the hands of Jimi Hendrix was beautiful music. Um, now, in a recent paper in 2002, uh, Noam Chomsky and Mark Hauser, biologists at Harvard University, Noam Chomsky is a linguist at MIT, uh, also uh, known for other writings. And Tecumseh Fitch, who's a, a biologist at uh, St. Andrews University in Scotland, proposed that the fundamental property of human language, in the sense that it is the only unique part of, the only unique characteristic that language is built on that distinguishes us from other species, is recursion. So how does this work in language, and why do they think it's important? Well, think of a sentence like, the boy was fishing. That's one sentence. But I've, what if I take whatever rule made that sentence and apply it to itself? Then I can say, the boy who was fishing owned the dog. So I have a sentence inside a sentence. Or the dog, the boy who was fishing, owned, bit the farmer. Or the farmer, the dog, the boy who was fishing, owned, bit, got the gun. At some point lose track of one of my favorite examples is oysters, oysters, eat, eat oysters. So that, that's actually a grammatical sentence, but I, it's really hard to understand. I'll let you think about it. <clears throat> Recursion is supposed to be very important. So you get it in words. Truck driver. It's a truck inside drive, and you get this other word, truck driver. It was a kick-the-bucket moment, whatever that means. But kick-the-bucket is a series of words used inside another word. And this is recursion. Human languages, what's the longest sentence in English? Who knows? The idea is that it might be infinite. And the only way we can do that with brains the size of grapefruits is to have some device that allows us to produce sentences that get that big without actually having to memorize the sentences. So that's supposed to be the role of recursion. So they claim this was unique to humans. This is the... They don't like it when I characterize it this way, but I think it's right, so I'll just say it anyway. The, the essence of human language, recursion. Now, it turns out that Pidaha doesn't have that. And I don't think it's the only language like that, but how would you say, I want the hammock that Bill sold? Okay, that's recursion. That's a sentence inside another sentence. How would you say that in Pidaha? You would say, I want the sentence. I, I want the sentence. You could say that too, perhaps. I want the hammock. Bill sold the hammock. And then I interpret that together in various ways. And one of the ways is... I want the hammock bill sold. <clears throat> the reason this is important is because if the pitaha don't have recursion, my explanation is, first of all, it's important if they don't have recursion, whatever the explanation is, because if you claim that it's the essence of human language and you don't find it in a human language, that's a problem. Now, some people have said, <laughs> well, uh, this just like finding, a, in fact, Chomsky said this about me recently in a, in a newspaper interview. He says, well, let's say that Pitaha is just the way Dan, dis well, he didn't say Dan, actually, he says something else, but um, <laughs> this uh, person uh, describes it, and that um, 
This is more or less equivalent to the idea of finding a group of people that just crawls when they could walk. What does that have to tell us about human biology? Nothing. Okay. Well, that's a difficult position to hold because if the language could be, as I said it was, and he admits that it could be, then it's possible for that language not to be like it was predicted to be. And it's also possible for a third of the languages in the world not to be that way. Ultimately, it's possible that no language has it. And if no language has it, then no language can support or refute the idea. So uh, some philosophers, if an idea can't be supported or refuted, it's not a particularly useful idea. So maybe it's wrong. And if that, if that idea is wrong, then it means that language is different than it was proposed by these three eminent researchers. And if it is different, what might it be? It might simply be the result of a number of kinds of constraints on how it is we talk to each other controlled by cultural values. And if cultural values can, can uh, affect language, then this means that language probably is not the innate instinct that, say, Steven Pinker and others say that it is. Uh, and this leads to fascinating research. So a lot of people are testing what I'm saying. There's a lot of discussion of this. And, and I do get a lot of hate mail as a result of saying that Pinaha don't have recursion. Uh, but that's all right. I can take it. Um, culture is very important. By learning the ways that language combine with culture, we learn lessons about the environment. So I remember going with the Pinaha upriver one time, and I saw some bubbles in the water. And I said, um, what's that? And I wanted to get the word for bubbles. But they didn't tell me the word for bubbles. They told me the word for a species of fish. Those, that's not a fish. That's a bubble. So I tried to get it across them. And they said, no, it's that species of fish. They, do, they eat this kind of thing down below the water, and it, reduces, it releases bubbles. I, who would have known that? There very few people would have known that if they didn't grow up around those, uh, uh, around those fish and know those fish walking in the jungle see a branch swaying. Now, to me, I don't know if the branch is swaying because of, um, of wind. Uh, that's usually what I figure it is, although uh, the Pinaha will point out to me that no other branch is swaying, and if it were wind, maybe the other branches would be swaying. Um, and it turns out to be a certain species of monkey, and they know that it inhabits that kind of tree and that it has this kind of behavior, and it, it operates at this time of day, not at night. Uh, I've been walking with them many times, and they... Uh, uh, tell me to stop because I'm about to step on a snake. Or, or you see that, uh, I remember going hunting with them one time, and, and we we'd gone out a couple of miles from the village, and they said, hey, Dan, what? You're making a lot of noise. Well, I'm just trying to, you know, I had my canteen and my machete, and, and they just were barefoot with, and they said, you just stay here, and we'll come back and get you when we're done. <laughs> so I stood there by the tree for probably four hours, hoping that there were no jaguars in the area, um, assuming that they wouldn't have left me if there were, not knowing that they would have expected me to be able to take care of myself because no idiot would go out into the jungle without knowing how to take care of themselves. Um, learning about their relationship to the environment and their knowledge of those animals, animals that many people... I don't know. I've pro I think I've eaten three species of extinct mammals. Uh, in the Pitaha, and I didn't make them go extinct. They were just claimed to be extinct, and the Pitaha not only know that they're not extinct, they know all about them. These are the kinds of things that we lose, and since the languages aren't written, you can't find this knowledge on the Internet. What is lost when we lose a language? We lose everything that one society has ever thought enough of to encode in their language. 
There's no chance to recover from it, except of a, a bit of the form. So one of the few examples of a language that has been revived is Hebrew. But we know that the Hebrew that's spoken in Israel today is not the Hebrew that was spoken 2,000 years ago. And there's a lot of information now that's been encoded since it's native, it has native speakers again, but it's not the same information that was encoded before it was lost. Fortunately, Hebrew was written. So uh, one of the legacies is religion, and we, we certainly know what that was because it was written. Um, we lose all the work of 10,000 atoms, of, of 10,000 naming societies that have gone out and learned and mastered uh, their environment and, and have all these things to teach us. This is not knowledge that will ever be available on the Internet. This is knowledge that will be lost forever unless we do something about it. What can we do? Well, one other thing I want to say before I get to some suggestions is what is so important? There's a fancy sociological term called alterity, which just means otherness, getting to know people who are different. Recently, the BBC asked me to come up with a 60-second idea to change the world. So in 60 seconds, I came up with my 60-second idea. I didn't take it very seriously, but people got, really liked the idea because it was something that did affect me, which is that everyone should live a week with strangers. Everyone should live a week with people that are very unlike them in many ways. This concept of otherness has been very profound in my life, coming from a small farming community in Hopeville, California, uh, and, and winding up uh, in, in the middle of the Amazon. There's something that is unappealing about everything being homogenous around us, about never experiencing different foods, different ways of life, different points of view. Uh, these can be threatening, but when we, the more that we lose in terms of diversity of world's languages and cultures, the more opportunities to solve problems, the more different perspectives we lose that we can never recover. The, the full range of the etic and the comfort of the emic. Let me just tell you those two words. These are really nice words. The etic means to have a perspective of a culture from someone who's outside the culture, just looking at what they do, just random behaviors, it looks like to us. But if you're inside the culture, you interpret these things very differently. That's the emic perspective, the perspective of the insider. And the more we get to know cultures through individual friends or through travels, through experiences of living abroad, the more we adopt other people's emic perspective, other people's insider perspective on cultures. And as these cultures and languages disappear, people like the Pitaha, we lose this perspective. My entire view of God and religion was altered forever. My entire view of language was altered forever by the Pinaha. And it's not because I've gone native, because frankly, I'd prefer to be in San Francisco than the Amazon many times. Uh, I mean, I do enjoy the Amazon, but um, um, I take a lot of reading material for the, for the nights, and, and I'm a terrible hunter. I'm, you know, people think, well, you must, be, you must be this great outdoorsman. No, I can take all this stuff, but I'm no good at it, and I don't particularly enjoy it a lot. Uh, but it is the experience that has changed me dramatically, not because I've gone native, but because I have seen profound examples of people who live differently, think differently, and have achieved more success in many respects than I have in, in their lives. So what do we do? We can't just watch indifferently as languages disappear. There's a partial solution one. Uh, we need to help these people get land rights. We need to help their... Uh, state of health, try to get the governments uh, of the world to provide better health care for these people so that they don't lose their language because they all die. Um, the 
second partial solution is to document and describe these languages. We need more field researchers. The problem is you can't be what some Australian linguists call FIFO linguists, fly in, fly out. You can't figure out these languages in a weekend's worth of study. It takes a long time. It takes a long time to figure out one of these languages even reasonably well. Um, a number, an, another possible solution is to give. One of, the, one of the organizations is called the Foundation for Endangered Languages, and here's its website. But there are lots of other organizations that are interested in this. Uh, but documenting endangered languages is not just butterfly collecting. It is teaching us things and preserving knowledge that we will never, ever have a chance to preserve again. And then in the meantime, those of us who aren't going to be involved directly in this, read and learn about other cultures and about these other peoples. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Um, so it sounds like Noam Chomsky is not persuaded yet. Uh, Are other people who have formerly been persuaded by Chomsky about the essentialness of recursiveness now being persuaded by your experience? They're taking it more seriously. The uh, major journal of linguistics language is dedicating about half of its uh, June issue to this discussion. Is it turning up in any other uh, tribes or languages? Yes, there are some others in which people are starting to re-examine the evidence and think, well, maybe I was too hasty in saying it did have recursion. After all, that's what my thesis advisor said. But maybe, I, maybe that's not the way it was. Uh, here's a question from Rolf. Uh, looks like Widenfeld. Where are you? Somewhere out here. Have you ever been tempted to bring someone from the Piraha tribe back out of there to the world. Now, there was that 13-year-old girl you ran into the day. That's right. Yes, I've, I've taken Peter Hunt out of the village to Brazilian cities for medical work. And um, it's, it, it is quite interesting to take them out. They take it all in stride. They're better anthropologists than I am. They watch and they behave like the people around them. Ben Gutierrez, is there any, in your view now, universal property of language. If it's not recursion, what do you got? Uh, the social need to communicate would be the one single universal of language, in my opinion. Now, I gather you're drawing, you're in a sense saying culture comes first and language comes from that. Is that I'm saying that they, they emerge together, a symbiosis, and you can't say that one is prior to the other, but that that you learn to talk about things you believe in and you believe in things you talk about. They reinforce one another as they emerge. Okay. Uh, Axel says, do the Piraha use the verb to be? If so, how often do they use metaphors? Metaphors sound recursive to me. <laughs> uh, they have uh, metaphors once in a while, so to go fast is to hit the ground with a big foot. Um, and they have the huh. verb to be, uh, so for something to be temporarily, like estar in Spanish, is aga, and for something to be uh, as an inherent quality, uh, as ser in Spanish, is aga. So just a tonal difference. How do you... We were with you at the airport throwing up in 1977. These guys come <laughs> up to you and start carrying on, and you don't have... You have Portuguese, and they don't. How do you learn a language from total scratch like that? 
started off with uh, picking up a stick. And I pointed to it and I said, stick. Which, but they said, oh, eh? Now, eh could mean all sorts of different <laughs> things, but I bet it meant stick. So then I took stick and I let it fall. And, and I said, stick falls to the ground. They said, eh, make it kawwe. And I said, I wrote down, this probably means stick falls to the ground. And um, from there we went. <laughs> lots of false starts and lots of mistakes. And I learned that if they start ribbing each other and grinning when I'm talking, <laughs> probably didn't learn it right. <laughs> now, you were there with very young children. Yes. And typically kids pick up language pretty quickly. Did that happen in your family? Yes. Uh, when we went there, my son uh, was nine months old, my middle daughter was three, and my oldest daughter was five. And um, they, they started learning the language much better than I did, much faster than I did, and they would go off uh, with the Pitaha children and spend their entire day playing. Were they learning it from other children primarily? Yes. yes. Interesting. So, so my middle daughter, for example, sends tapes to the Pitaha with me, but she still sounds like a little girl because she left uh, so long ago and her <laughs> vocabulary is still that of a little girl. Right. Are there different uh, forms of the language for males and females? Yes, the men have 11 sounds, 11 phonemes, three vowels, eight consonants. The women have three vowels, seven consonants. And, and the way they pronounce words is quite a bit different from the men. Which um, I think I heard when we were talking before that during the day the men are off doing something with other men and the women are off doing something with other women. Is that mostly the it's, case? It's very common to do that. The women very often go and collect fruits and things while the men go off. And, and fish and hunt. And like in most societies, the women are usually the only ones who find anything to eat. Um, but uh, they often go off as families as well and do things as families. You mentioned they're humorous. Uh, a whole lot of how humor works is in language. So uh, do they do puns? I have never heard a pinaha pun, um, but I have, uh, they, they do like to joke uh, about things that happen, and so they spend a lot of time laughing. It's a fairly low sort of slapstick humor, exactly like mine, so we get along very well. Uh, is there any of the humor that is in the, the language? I mean, you, you, they could tell you a story about uh, uh, killing babies, uh -huh. and that's a, a, I mean, lots of anthropologists <laughs> run into this with, <laughs> right, their, right. with their informants. But um, the, the the clue isn't presumably in the language of them telling the story. The clue is in that, that and the why it's funny to them is it's an absurd story they're telling. That's right. That's right. They told the story beautifully. So I told a, a story back to them. I found a cartoon of a dog hunting, and they can't read two-dimensional objects very well. So drawings, because they're not exposed to them. So drawings and pictures look the same. So I showed them a dog hunting with a gun. And uh, they said, where did, so I then told them a whole story about dogs that hunt with guns. And, and they were fascinated. And I said, dogs don't hunt with guns. Uh, so I, they realized that I had gotten them back for the story about the babies. Uh, yes. Politely or were they really amused? Well, they first they were upset. They said, you, you lied to us. I said, yes, and you lied to me. Oh, that's right, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and we are laughing, and so it goes. Uh, you were telling Kevin Kelly a while ago that basically they work about four hours a day. That's right. And they don't have television, so what's going on the rest of the time? Sit around talking, uh, gossiping, and uh, talking about what they're going to do tomorrow, and... Uh, um, uh, 
just wasting time like most of us would like to do if we had the time to waste? Gossiping with only this limited level of generation and family must be. Uh, I mean, do they get into you know the mother-in-law weirdness and stuff like that? <laughs> no, they talk about who's a bad hunter and and right. uh, who is uh, uh, who's going to uh, go where tomorrow and what are you going to do tomorrow? And then they tell lots of uh, sexual jokes about each other's wives and things. So, uh, do they? Husbands. I mean. English people love to, for some reason, analyze each other's personalities a lot, so do teenagers. And it, it, does that go on? Are people sort of very alert to each other's characters and personalities and the difference, and that becomes part of the byplay? Yes, they definitely understand. They, they have uh, an idea about how every member of their society works and functions, and they, they really have knowledge about all the people in their society. But there's not a great distinction between adults, teenagers, and children because everyone in a harsh environment has to take responsibility for themselves very early. So, you know, if you're a rebellious teenager and you don't want to do anything that day, fine, you just won't eat. Uh, and so as long as you're willing to pay the consequences for your own action, uh, nobody's going to tell you what to do. So that's actually a, an important Peter Hahn value, is not telling other people what to do. Bring it on. What are the rituals of you know puberty or of marriage or coming apart or things go on around death? Uh, no, there aren't any rituals except for a dance uh, that they do when the full moon, and, and it's debatable whether you would want to call that a ritual or not, and it gets into technical anthropological discussion. But, for example, to, to get married, two people go off and live with one another. And I've seen uh, eight-year-old children go off and live with each other for a while because the guy already knows how to fish and she knows how to clean fish. Uh, so uh, they pretend to be, then they go back to their parents, but it's, at some point they stay with each other. But there's no particular ritual for that or puberty or, or any typical rite of passage. Uh, from Luigi, if there's no past or future, can there be spoken consequences, rewards, punishments, outcomes? Uh, how does learning occur in this sort of timeless frame? They, they do have a knowledge of past and future, and they do think about the past and future, but not the past that hasn't been experienced, the past in their own lives, the past they have seen. And, of course, we've seen the, the entire history of our lives, and they can, think about, they, they can think about anything they want to think about, but they talk about only the immediate future. So you can talk about what somebody did yesterday and why that has consequences today. That's not a problem, and why you ought not to do this tomorrow. But you won't say something like, you know, by, in 50 years from now, the uh, Brazilians will have taken over this part of the jungle. Kyle Elliott has a question. What is the Piraha concept of love? Do they have one since it cannot be seen? Uh, they can see the effects of it. Uh, they, they see the effects of, of, of being with someone. And uh, uh, so they, they definitely are very affectionate with one another. And they use a verb for love, which is, is like Spanish and other languages, is to want uh, someone very mm -hmm. much is, is to love them. And I remember one of the most uh, moving experiences I had. I was getting ready to leave the village, and the Pitaha man, who's, if anyone's seen the picture of, of me with my head coming up out of the river and this guy in a canoe, that guy said to me when I was leaving, he said, we really want you. I really love you. And, and I thought that was really great. I was really moved by that. And he said, nobody else gives us coffee. <laughs> <laughs> So you're from outside. Uh, do they have contact with other tribes? Um, 
occasionally there's, there's a group uh, of Tupi-speaking uh, people that are within a two-day walk of the Pinaha village. And sometimes each group walks a day away from the village to hunt. So they do encounter each other in the jungle. And the Pinaha think of them as these kinds of jungle entities. I mean, they know that they speak another language. They know where their villages are, but they don't like them. And they're afraid of them. And the Paranchinchins, this other people, uh, for different reasons, are afraid of the Pitaha. Who do they steal the canoes from? Uh, Brazilian river boats that are in that go by neighboring rivers to look for Brazil nuts. The Pitaha paddle up at night and take as many canoes as they can off the ends of the boats. And I guess nobody had any knowledge of what they used to do before the river boats were there, so it's a mystery. They make a bark canoe called mm-hmm. a cagahue, which they just take the bark off a certain kind of tree and they put mud at both ends, and that's a canoe. And, but that doesn't carry much weight, and it doesn't last very long. Most of their culture is disposable. They make a basket, and they throw it away as soon as they're done carrying things. Uh, they make it very crudely and just throw it away. Uh, the only permanent tools that they... There are very few permanent tools, and the most obvious one is the bow and arrow. How permanent is that? Uh, it will last... Uh, a good bow will last for years. Um, and, and the bow string and the arrow, these are the most elaborate cultural artifacts they create. And presumably there's a lot of maintenance with those, keeping the arrows straight and things like that? Or? Yeah, you have to put them in the uh, fire and straighten them out uh, and, and make sure the feathers are twisted right so that they'll twirl right in the air. And, and there's a whole, a whole science to that. And, but every child learns it from their parent, so they mm-hmm. see it happen. It's not a literate, there's no literature, oral literature, about this is how you make a bow and arrow. Uh, these are the kinds of things you don't need to talk about. It's like telling someone, have a literature about how to get a glass of water. Hmm. So you told several stories about their um, intense observational and, and sort of knowledge qualities. They're embedded in the language and even more in their behavior so that they know that, you know, that, that there's a shaking uh, tree. They know what kind of tree it is, what kind of monkey it is, and probably if they can shoot it with an arrow, a lot of stuff like that. Are they more observative in that sense than other tribal groups or just the way it is when you're that close? Other tribal groups that have limited contact with the outside tend to be roughly comparable. I've worked with over 20 different groups in the Amazon. Mm. The groups that are learning Portuguese and moving away from their language lose skills with that. They lose some of that knowledge. So that I I actually recorded the Banawa that I talked about briefly imitating animal sounds. Mm. And I took that to the Pitaha and played it for them. And they all laughed. They recognized every animal and they said, these guys know their animals. Uh, and I recorded the Pitaha and took them to the Banawa and they all recognized them. But the Banawa are losing their language. And so it's only the older men who can make those sounds like the Pitaha, any Pitaha can make those sounds and who know all about the animals and their behavior. Now one of the remarkable things you did with the, with the sound here was we were hearing what sounded like singing and sort of blending into speaking, and you're saying they're basically the same. I'm saying right. more about that. They, they can, the Pitaha, don't, even though they only have three vowels and eight consonants, often speak without using them at all because they can whistle their language, they can hum their language. Uh, so, so if you see, for example, uh, a mother and a child, most of the time she won't be talking to that child with consonants and vowels. She'll be saying things like, mm, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm and just humming, but that's a f- they can carry on a full conversation doing that because of all the rich uh, information that's in the tones, in the uh, length of the words, in the divisions of the words that are even made in the, uh, 
the syllables made with the hum speech or the whistle speech or the yell speech. Uh, there are various different kinds of uh, communication that they use that are unavailable to, uh, to, to us in English for, because we don't have tones uh, in our language. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and even us, we can use it to some degree. Another fascinating thing about the Pinaha whistle speech is that only men whistle. Women don't whistle. And if you look at whistles around the world, in almost every society that has whistle speech, and there are several, only men whistle. And even in English, up until a few years ago, if anybody was going to do whistling at another person, it tended to be men. So uh, uh, why that is, nobody really knows. <laughs> That's probably profound. <laughs> okay, here's a good Rosetta-type question. You mentioned nearly 7,000 uh, documented languages out there. How many of those are written? How many can we put on the disk? Oh, the ones that are written are probably uh, around 3,000. Probably. Yes. And again, it's very difficult to say because to even get an idea of these things, uh, writing is, is, a, is a very uh, uh, significant invention in human history. It's only mm -hmm. been invented about four or five times in the history of the Less species. than agriculture. That's amazing. Yes. It, and, and so it was invented in the Americas by Sequoia, the Cherokee chief, uh, and, and that's an amazing accomplishment. It was invented by the Phoenicians. It was invented uh, by the Chinese, but it's been invented very few times. So most languages, unless someone's gone there, a linguist, and used the international phonetic alphabet to begin to develop a writing system for them, the language is not written. So more than half the languages of the world are not written. Now, one of the big things of missionary endeavor all over the world, as near as I can tell, is often to go into an unwritten language group and then for the missionaries to... Uh, start creating a written form. What happens when that goes on? They, when they write the language and the people begin to learn to read and write it, uh, then you see the language change in several ways because uh, some of the, the oral style is lost because they start to use the written style begins to take more of an influence. Uh, the sentences often become longer because uh, you write them down and you can remember them longer. It, it affects a lot of things. Uh, we tried to teach the Pitaha how to read and write at first, and um, after s several weeks of trying, they read the word migi, and they all started laughing. And I said, why are you laughing? And they said, that sounds just like our word for ground. And I said, it is your word for ground. And they said, no, it isn't. We don't write our language. Uh, <laughs> they s and so then they stopped coming to the classes. <laughs> Question from Stuart Robinson. How do you distinguish between the lack of a word and the lack of a concept? That's a, that, that's a profound question, and it's a very difficult question to determine. But you can, you can uh, get at the absence of a concept in, in various ways. Do they talk about this thing uh, roundabout in their stories? Can you do psychological experiments to see if they have this concept? Uh, it, it's not transparent. It's not a very easy thing to do, but there are ways at getting at whether they have a word, uh, whether they, they have a concept but lack the word. Uh, what do you tell from all this or surmise from all this about languages being born? Are languages being born now, or is it, or is it just purely a tale of loss? There are always languages uh, coming into being. Uh, 
Uh, from nothing or sort of forking off as dialects and then become languages? Well, the one type of language that comes pretty much from nothing is the Creole language. And we find mm. these Creole languages arising in different parts of the world. And those are fascinating in themselves. They've been taken as some of the greatest evidence for the language instinct. I don't think they are, but it's a long story. Uh, but you do also find languages coming into being uh, when people stop talking with one another. So you find the greatest divisions of languages where there are the greatest geographical obstacles and where people who used to speak the same language and no longer speak uh, to one another on a regular basis, their languages change and they become mutually unintelligible languages. Well, I wonder about that because Papua New Guinea, that sort of makes sense, very yeah. chopped up landscape. But here in California, with this big valley and its coastal connection and so on, we had, what, 26, 26 or so language groups, is that right? Actually, there are more, even today, there are almost 55 languages spoken in California. Okay. Indigenous languages. What's going on? Uh, well, those languages are now dying out. But at the time, one of the highest concentrations of languages in the world uh, used to be, and still is uh, uh, to a large extent, the northwestern United States, southwestern Canada. So uh, Northern California, Oregon, Washington, up to British Columbia is a very high concentration of diverse indigenous languages. Uh, and, and so there are various reasons people don't talk to one another. They don't talk to one another sometimes because of geography, but they may not talk to one another because of tribal boundaries. They may not talk to one another because of religious beliefs. They may not talk to one another. Whatever the reasons are that people stop talking to one another, that failure to communicate will eventually lead over generations to separate languages. Now, something I saw in East Africa when I was there is 10-year-olds who had mastered six or seven languages, three of them European, you know, English, French, German, and then you know, all of the nearby tribal languages, and of course Swahili. Is this sort of a unique situation of post-colonial connectivity or normal in the world? It's fairly normal in the world for people who have to use languages, various languages, to master them. And it turns out that the human brain is sufficiently plastic that when we need to learn other languages, we can. It becomes harder when our, our needs are less, uh, but you often find people who are, are polyglots in various parts of the world, whether it's in Africa or Holland. So I'm thinking also, I mean, part of the, I have very limited knowledge of California, Tribes, but some, and, and things like hand game, uh, were very widely played among many different mm -hmm. tribes and often right. between tribes. I've seen right. hand game played between Paiutes and Maidu, yeah. completely different forms of playing mm -hmm. the game. One tribe really won, even though it's supposedly a game of right. chance. And uh, we find artifacts so that uh, most of the obsidian that people were using for arrowheads and so on came from Mono Lake and had to go from one place to another in order to get all the tribes that needed arrowheads. And yet these language divisions persist. So right. what moves across that, and does it take bilingual people to do that, or is it sign language, or what? Well, very often, languages represent cultural values as well. And people have theories or beliefs, whatever you want to call them, about how their languages reflect who they are. And they may not want to learn another language, even of people that they have to come into contact with. So either there could be someone special designated to learn the language and represent the tribe. They could use a sign language as the sign language of the American Indians of the Plains. Mm -hmm. there, there are lots of different ways to get around this issue. And in, in globalization, we're regularly dealing with people that the average American doesn't speak Japanese, but we have a lot of contact and trade with the Japanese. Would some, I mean, some tribes um, steal women from other tribes, and right. do they presumably get some bilingual, bilingual capabilities with that? 
Yes, that's very common. In fact, there's a part of northern Brazil which practices something called linguistic exogamy. They have to marry uh, a woman who speaks a different language. And so there are various people in the area. And so what you find is that uh, the children grow up speaking the mother's tongue, and then if they're a boy, they, they switch to their father's tongue uh, when, they, when they get past puberty. But uh, this kind of linguistic complication is, is common. Uh, in the, that particular situation is not common, but, but linguistic uh, intermarriage is, is common. So does that also happen with the Piraha, where the, the children are basically speaking the woman's language until they get to a certain age and are going off for the men hunting, or how does yes, that transition? Yes, that happens. I mean, you find boys, in, in fact, because of all the hum speech that takes place, hmm. um, they tend to use a, a sound <laughs> like a glottal stop. If you hear, a glottal stop is a sound that's, that's, you find it in English, but we don't use it very importantly. So glottal uh, uh, stop. Uh, 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 uh. That's a glottal stop that breaks up the flow of air. Scottish so, use. Yes, yeah, Scottish bottle. Uh, but you find that uh, the, the Pitaha children will often, instead of saying alligator, uh, or, or let's see, uh, head, apapai, very, very often they will say aai. Uh, children especially do that. You use glottal stops because they haven't really learned the consonants that well yet because of hum speech with their mothers. So the, uh, we were talking about sign language. One question from Carmen Olson is, do the Piraha have a sign language? And if there is deafness, how do they deal with it? Uh, there's no uh, sign language. They have I, gesture, presumably. Yes. They, yeah, they use gestures. Gestures are very important in all human cultures, and they reveal a lot about the mind. In fact, you can't really study a language without looking at gestures as well, because that's a very important part of the communication system. There are no deaf pinaha that I'm aware of. Anytime there are handicapped people, they take good care of them. In another tribe of Brazil, the, the Urubu Kapor, there's a high incidence of deafness, and they have learned sign language, and if there's one deaf person present in the entire village, everyone only uses sign language until that person is gone. Then they switch to speaking. <coughs> Yeah, I've run into versions of that with, with American Indians. Um, people teaching American Indian, completely American Indian classes often have a problem that uh, nobody is allowed to excel, and so that they stay at the level of the you know, least interested student. Right. And so that can be a serious problem in terms of people um, connecting with the world. Mike Finney, you gave an example of numbers of the concept that Piraha can't understand are the things they can't understand because they can't use recursion. I haven't found anything, but if you wow. don't talk about, um, I mean, actually, recursion is is something that people have made a big deal of. But there's nothing you can say with recursion that you can't say without it. So some people have told me, well, how do they have? If you say John said that Bill's a bad boy. Bill's a bad boy is a sentence within the sentence John said that. You can't talk about things that people said without recursion. In fact, you can. Think about this sentence. I threw up. That's what John said anyway. Those are two separate sentences, and that doesn't involve recursion. And, and uh, you, you can communicate these things just fine without And they recursion. use workarounds like that? Yes. Yeah. And, and in fact, it, it just means that the context plays a much greater role Recursion turns out to be a very useful device for manipulating the flow of information when in, in cultures where we're talking about things that not everyone knows. But in a culture 
uh, society of intimates in which everybody pretty much knows what everybody else is going to talk about in terms of the topics. They don't need that kind of information management tool. They can have sentences uttered side by side, and there's a lot of contextual information and cultural information to get exactly the right interpretation every time. So that total shared immersion gives these kinds of capabilities, and it also, it sounds like, would lead to absolute direction, so toward the ocean and away from the ocean right. rather than the stage left and stage right. Uh, well, actually, same thing. Right? We, just, <laughs> we just did it. Uh, the sharedness is what allows, uh, what I'm hearing is that a very intimate group can have this kind of rather, to us, limited language. But it only works in a limited situation like that. And, uh, and so the 13-year-old Paraha girl who goes out and works in the shop, she's going to take on numbers. She's right. got the skill. And in order to get the job, she needed the skill. So it's a moving out from that intimacy then leads into these other things that language, uh, like numbers and recursion and so on. That's right. And it's predicted independently by a lot of linguistic research uh, done in, uh, recently. Some people call it esoteric communication. You're talking about always the same kinds of topics. Others refer to it as the society of intimates. But this has a lot to do with new views. This is quite re related to new views on the evolution of language, coming out of these narrow groups, these small groups, into larger groups. So the human intelligence didn't change, but the complexity of language changed. This complexion, the complexity of the syntax, the grammar, because of the wider society and the greater range of experiences and the information had to be managed uh, differently. So as you go from a very small hunter-gatherer group to a larger sort of chieftainship or something like that to a federation, you're going to have that reflected in the language? Uh, you could. There's the, the, the thing is it's not required. You could have very small groups with very complex language and large groups with simple languages. Um, but the general tendency mm -hmm. is for... The, the complexity of the grammar to, uh, to, to fit the society in which it's found. There's a lot more research that has to be done on these things. But we, the, the one thing we have to be careful of is not to assume that if it's a small group, they have a very simple grammar, and if it's a large group, they have a very complicated grammar, because uh, they, can, they can be just the opposite. This relates to a question from Kevin Kelly. Can a language like Piraha continue outside the environment? That is, if, I mean, Lots of diasporas maintain their language and mm -hmm. you know, using it over the internet and on right. their cell phones and so on. Do you think that Piraha, uh, if there were a, a, uh, an exodus, would they maintain the language as it is? Well, you maintain the form of the language, you maintain the meaning of most of the words, but you begin to lose that connection with the culture and the local environment that gives mm -hmm. the language, uh, to speak metaphorically, its soul, that really gives the language uh, the special content that makes it unusual. So, so I've told a lot of linguists think they can do field work in Los Angeles, for example, on just about any language in the world. So you find linguists uh, that apply for assistant professorships that list field work on their, on their vita because they, they work with some speakers in Los Angeles. So if I'm right, you have to do field work in the local community where the culture is still practiced. You can look at these other languages. There are other things you can find outside the cultural community. But if you really want to write a grammar and a dictionary and figure out how this language works, uh, you need it to be connected to the local community where the culture is, is still uh, vibrant. So I guess 
I'm starting to get a question in my mind about uh, second languages and, and trade languages like Swahili, mm -hmm. uh, like Latin for a while, like French for a while, like English now, right. which is sort of the global language of science, entertainment, and various right. other things. Does having a shared second language help preserve primary languages, or does it erode them? It, it really depends on the local values. In other words, you can learn another language and the children can begin to shift away to that language very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends, uh, in globalization, often depends on what the economic rewards are or, the, or any other kind of rewards are for continuing to speak your language. In most cases, the economic rewards of speaking the second language begin to overwhelm all the values that reward speaking the first language. So you see language shift in dramatic numbers. It sounds like with the Piraha there are almost no economic events going on. They're not interested in goods from the outside world. They're, they're, I, I've been with so many Amazonian groups, for example, who are Like uh, if you depressed. offer them a really good knife, they're not interested? Oh, they'll take it. They're curious about it. They'll take it. They'll use it. But they don't protect it. They don't save it. Wow. I mean, you might find it laying out in the grass a couple of days later. Uh, they have a few tools, but they're not worried about them. Uh, they, they're just not. This, a value for the Pitaha is to keep yourself simple, to not use, take any, not acquire any more than you can walk off with, and very quickly, uh, to not consume more than you need. Is this because they see or experience the failure to do that? It's just a value not to. They want to be mobile. I mean, they, they have a nomadic uh, mindset. They travel right. around a lot. They want the whole village travels or individuals. Individuals, mm -hmm. families travel, and and they ha they want to be mobile and they want to be what they call hard jigesai. And to be hard means to not to be in control of your body and to not eat too much, to not sleep too much, to to hard bodies. Yeah, hard bodies. Um, the straight ones. Uh, does that suggest a concept of crooked ones? Or no? Yes, we are crooked ones. We are crooked. Yeah, all of us are bent. Awe, which is any kind of thing that's bent. They're uh, ethnocentric. So in the sense, that, are they saying to you, well, we're not you? Is that what straight ones means? Or who are no, they, they saying no, no, straight ones to? They're better. Okay. They're better than the we The better are. ones. <laughs> Chosen they're people. They're straight That's, and we're yeah, crooked. Their language is to speak with a straight head, uh, and, and to speak any other language is to speak with a crooked head. That's it. And what do you think they're referring to with crookedness there? Is that what recursion it's, is and numbers uh, and all that? <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just unattractive, ugly. I mean, I've taken, mm. taken Pitaha with me mm. uh, to visit other Indian villages when I had to go there for a couple of hours to, for a medical reason or something like that, and I had a Pitaha was with me independently. And, and I said, what did you think about them? Oh, they're ugly. What about their water? Their water stinks. Uh, <laughs> they, they really have a very high opinion. And so I said, why do you think I'm here? This is the best place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> they don't say the best place in the world, but they say this is a very, very good place. They don't have a concept of world. Do they have a concept of luck and that you were a lucky person to be there? Is, super, are there, you know, is there luck and bad luck and uh, they don't talk bad about, medicine? And they don't talk about luck. Somebody told me about the Pitaha. As far as they're concerned, somebody told me about them. I, I knew that the river had lots of fish and that the place is beautiful and that it doesn't get cold, and that's why I went there. Question from Laura. Would you call them short-term thinkers? And here were these long-term thinkers. They uh, would be short-term thinkers. And, and for long-term thinkers, the value of that is to, uh, is, to, is to not devalue our immediate experience, to think about the future, to plan for tomorrow and for many tomorrows in advance, 
but to learn to be satisfied with the day as it is. Uh, you know, one of the Bible verses that I thought the Pitaha exemplified better than any other is, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Uh, take care of today, and, and tomorrow will take care of itself. But it grows out of a confidence of their ability to take care of themselves that they don't have to worry about tomorrow because they're confident. They show themselves that each day they're able to take care of their needs. And, and that is a, is a solid way to think about the future, not out of fear but out of confidence of being able to take care of your daily needs. So in their presence, you went from a faith-based approach to things to an evidence-based, it sounds like. To some degree, that's true. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of linguists that would say that I'm still faith-based in my linguistics, but uh, uh, <laughs> I think I've gone to a more evidence-based approach. A uh, question from Carolyn. We'll make it the last one. Um, do you talk to the women as well as the men? And as a man, uh, were the women treating you, speaking with you sort of as a man or just as this weird alien being, a speaking dog or something? And this, the question involves what are the gender relationships and do you have a sense of, here's a recursive question, how your presence there had effect on their culture or language? Well, clearly my presence there affects them because it, just as they show me other ways of being, I show them other ways of being. And so they see the things that I do. And, and uh, one of, they were talking once, how did Dan learn our language so fast? Nobody else has ever learned our language. And they said, he just sits on his butt all day and looks at paper. And that's the way you learn languages. And, but it made them think for the first time about how you could learn another language. And so they started asking me how to say things in English and Portuguese. And so, you know, what is that called? Mesa. And then they said, yeah, but that's ugly, so we don't want to talk that. <laughs> it sounds like um, their culture is not going to be thrown far off track by the likes of you. They're a very resilient culture. Um, they, I, I would say that over the last 30 years, my effect on them has been minimal, and their effect on me has been maximal. And, and let's finish with the gender thing, because I think this is of interest to all of us who've been you know, fighting hard to get the genders equal and communicating and equal pay and the rest of it. Here's a situation where the genders have almost different worlds to some extent, different language to some extent. And you're coming in, were you a man speaking to the women? Do you speak to the women? Uh, how are you treated in that Well, array? it took years before the women would say a word to me because they first, they don't talk to outsiders. And second, they don't. Uh, but after a few years when I could speak the language pretty well, I started telling jokes around the women. And they would try not to laugh, but they would start laughing. And then they just, now they talk to me normally. Uh, and, and so they talk to me like they would any Pitaha man. Uh, so, so they do talk. It's, they do have the, uh, spheres of labor and, and, and specialty, but the women and men uh, get along very well, and it's, it's sometimes the man will stay home with the children while the woman goes out fishing, uh, and, and he might stay home while she goes uh, to, to look for uh, Brazil nuts. Uh, so so they, and they, they take... Uh, I, I don't notice a great difference in, in the sense of status between men and women in the society. Well, I've heard it said that in most tribal groups, sort of the women are the, uh, the food in. <laughs> Carry it on. Thank you so much. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. 
Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.